0: none last Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, if you'll grab your Bibles this morning, we always have some in the back if you need one. We are in Nehemiah seven. We're just going to jump right into it. So Nehemiah 773 is where we're going to start. It says, the priests, the Levites and the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, along with the certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own, own towns. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. I don't know if you noticed, that's six hours, so... As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened, uh, listened attentively to the book of the law. Now this happens in 444 B.C. in the month of what It's an old Hebrew calendar. It splits the month of, of our September to the middle of October. So on the first day of the seventh month, sometime in September of 444 B.C., they gathered. This is kind of exciting from a standpoint, from, from those that love history. I'm kind of a history buff. I, I hope at least a, a few of you are. But for so long ago, we can pinpoint the exact day. You have to go back 2,456 years ago, last month. This is real history, folks. This is a particular day that they gathered together to hear the Word of God. The Bible is real history. And archaeologists will will use the Bible to actually find stuff they'll sit there and they'll read the Bible and the Bible will say, "Well, in this area at this time there was you know this was happening this group of people were there and archaeologists literally will use the Bible to go find these places, but they'll also sometimes go and say, "Well, nowhere and we don't see Pontius Pilate at all in history and you know it's not mentioned anywhere else until they go down to Caesarea and they found a stone that actually has his name on it so they'll even try to disprove it yep." The Bible, man, it's true every time. The Bible is real history. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. I wish I had a good picture of this, this area. We were actually right there, and I, I looked through my pictures, and I couldn't find a good one. But we stood right there near what the, where this gate would be in Israel. So it says that they all gathered as one man. Now, what does that mean, as one man? Does that mean all the men gathered? No, at this particular point, it's saying they all gathered as one. They were, they were unified. What they just accomplished was a great thing. In 52 days, they accomplished building this wall that we've been talking about that they hadn't been able to accomplish in a couple of generations. 52 days they did this. This something great has been done here. I mean, their, their self-esteem is pretty high right here. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So the crowd, as they gather up, and this was kind of a spontaneous crowd gathering. This wasn't, oh, a planned thing where where they said, okay, we're all going to get together. No, they just came together, and they cried out for the word of God. Now, some of you may go, well, Ezra, this is the first time we've heard his name. Who is Ezra? Well, Ezra, and the, you know, the, actually the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah in the Jewish Bible is actually the same book. In the English Bible, we split them out because they're two different people. But I think it's interesting how the Lord works here because Ezra was brought to Jerusalem by the Lord 14 years earlier than Nehemiah. So he brings this guy in to, to teach the word of God to the people, to bring them back to a point where they're listening to the Lord. And then Nehemiah comes, and they team up together. And this new, new leader shows up. So all these, you know, all these weeks that they've been working on the wall, seven and a half weeks, Ezra's been down there working with him because he was one of the priests. And they were assigned a, assigned a section of the wall, so he's down there working long beside him. But Nehemiah didn't need to mention him until now. Well, why? Well, the first part of the, you know, is about construction of the city wall. The second part is going to be about the instructions that needs to happen. So first you have the the building of the physical wall, and second, you have the building of the the uh, invisible sort of wall, a, a barrier or a protection. And that's actually been going on for 14 years as Ezra the priest has been leading them. We actually know a lot about Ezra. You know, we could cover, you know, we're only going to cover a little bit, but I mean we could go on and on and on about Ezra. We could say several weeks talking about Ezra but I'm going to jump to Ezra chapter 7 verse 1 and it says that after these things and did I get mixed up here after these things during the reign of Artaxerxes the king of Persia so we have the same guy that Nehemiah was was you know the number two man in the kingdom for he was the go-to guy so the same king is there king of Persia Ezra, son of uh, Sariah, son of Azariah, and so on and so forth, and a whole bunch of great names. The son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Now, he just told us something very important when he said the son of the chief priest, or or, uh, son of Aaron, the chief priest. Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron. And some of us may go, (laughs) well, Who's that? Some guy named Aaron in, in the past. Well, Aaron is Israel's first high priest. Aaron was the guy that was with Moses as Moses went and, and said, Let my people go to Pharaoh. He was there in the wilderness with, with Moses. He was the first priest as God set up the theocracy that he had for Israel. Moses, you are the leader. But you're going to have to have a priest. So Ezra can, tra- can, can trace his lineage back 900 years. And, you know, some of you are like, well, that's great, Pastor Alan, but what's your point? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, can you do that? Can you trace your lineage back 900 years? Think about that for a second. That's amazing. Can you go back a thousand years and thousand years and say or to a thousand B.C. or whatever and say, well, leave somebody Viking as my relative? I can only go back to the 1600s. My heritage actually goes back to and and I get a laugh out of this, so I understand that. I'm actually related to Pocahontas. I I told you, you're going to laugh. I understand that, but somebody in my family has all you know traced it all back. And she married she married a, a you know an Indian woman, married a white guy, and they started a family. And and her son married, and and then you know somewhere along the lines, you know the, the family line goes back there. I'm actually related to Edith Bowling Galt Wilson, which is the wife of President Woodrow Wilson. I'm related to Admiral Bir, uh, Richard Byrd. I'm related to the Rothschilds. Now, if you know your history, man, uh, there should be some money coming my way. I'm related to the former first lady, Nancy Reagan. Now, a lot of good this does me. It doesn't really do me any good, but it's kind of cool. 400 years, only because somebody else did the research for us. But go back 1,000 years. That's amazing. Most of us can't do that. But it was important for Ezra to do this. Why was it important for Ezra to do this? Because he was a priest of the priestly line in order for him to be a priest, he had to be a descendant of Aaron's tribe. So Ezra is basically saying, this is who I am. These are my credentials. Here's my card. That's what he's basically saying to them. You can trust me to be a priest of Jerusalem. Nehemiah could not be the priest. Remember when a friend of Nehemiah's, you know, basically said, hey, they're going to come kill you, and they were trying to kill him. And he said, hey, Let's go hide in the temple. Nehemiah's response was, no, I'm not a priest. I can't do that. Only priests can go into the temple. But Ezra is a priest. In verse 6 it says, This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. He's basically a biblical expert specializing in the law. He knew the Old Testament, but, you know, you know, especially the five, you know, the first five books of the Bible, which are what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, the Jewish faith, they call this the Torah. It's the first five books. It's the law. And it says the king had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord. His God was on him. Some of, the, uh, some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And this is how we know that he was there 14 years before Nehemiah. And it says here that Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He began his journey from Babylon the first day of the month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. Now, that's a long traveling time. For the gracious hand of God was on him, for Ezra had devoted himself to study and the uh, observance of the law of the Lord and the teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This was his life purpose. This was his mission statement. Ezra devoted himself to the study and uh, observance of the law of the Lord and teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Man, this guy knew what his job was going to be. God's hand was upon him. He's saying, I am devoting myself. I'm setting my heart to study the law, to do the law, to act on the law, and then to teach the law. This is what I should do. And we talked a lot last week about what we could do versus what we should do. I mean, Ezra, he was a smart guy. I'm sure he could do a lot of things. But what should he be doing? He decided he was going to teach the law. It's why it's important for us to figure out what God wants us to do in this life. Now, to seek the law means to love the Bible more than any other possession. You're not going to put your... You know, hey, you know, I'm one of those guys that, you know, the Bible, it's just words written on paper unless we take it and internalize it. You, you understand what I'm saying? But there's, a, there's another thought, and I totally understand this thought, and I don't, I'm not knocking this, this thought, but there's another thought of, man, my Bible is precious. Because those words go into me, my Bible is precious. I'm not going to put my Bible in the trunk. You're not going to see me set a a cup of coffee down on the top of my leather Bible. No, my Bible is precious, and that's important, and that's that's an okay thought. This is all he did, and he did it well. He was going to teach the law. You know, it could be that early in his life this is not what he wanted to do, but the Lord got a hold of him. The Lord said, this is your job. Ezra, go to Jerusalem. But, but Lord, <laughs> there's no walls there. That's not important right now. I have, something, you know, I have somebody coming for that later. But you, Ezra, I want you to do this right now. Sometimes I think we've, we forget the long view of things. We expect everything to turn around immediately when we bring in the new guy. Especially when it comes to elections, right? Everything's got to turn around immediately. Well, I guarantee it doesn't work that way. Economies don't work that way. And and whether you're liberal or you're conservative, you know what? That's between you and God. You go and vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. But you need to vote. You need to exercise that right. But but we need to have a long view of things. You know, we think we bring in the new guy. The company profits ought to immediately go up. Man, by the next quarter, those things better be shining. You know, they better be up or we're going to come talk to you. But sometimes it takes years. Ezra's going, but Lord, those walls aren't up there. Well, I know, but I need you to keep teaching the people. Nehemiah could not have built the wall in 52 days if it hadn't been for who? Ezra, teaching the word of God to the people for 14 years. God is looking for people to do some of the most unspectacular plowing in this earth. Do You understand what I'm saying here? God is looking for people to sometimes just mow the lawn, to pull the weeds, to teach the younger children, verse by verse, chapter by uh, by chapter. They need you to teach them. If we don't love the Word of God, if we don't study the Word of God on a weekly basis, who else is going to do that? Our schools? No. They're not allowed to do that. We have to do this. We have to provide this education for our children. Ezra consistently plowed through the Word of God. He consistently went to it to learn it and then to plant it, to plant it into other people's lives. Ezra was there all along. Ezra wasn't the guy sitting there going, I was here for 14 years. I, can't, I mean, all of a sudden this guy, Nehemiah, shows up and everybody's all like, hey, Nehemiah! No, Ezra wasn't acting that way. Ezra was like, hey, great, th- th- great, this is awesome. We got the wall up. Now what are we going to do? Ezra was, was the man, also. You know, this is a biblical concept between Ezra and Nehemiah this partnership. Two strong personalities that have different talents, different gifts, coming together to accomplish a purpose. They complement each other. Think, I mean, think back through the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, they complement each other. We have Moses and Aaron, and Moses and, and her, H U R, her. Uh, it's a guy. And then we have Moses and Jethro and Moses and Joshua. All different giftings at different times in history that Moses needed somebody there with him. And God provided that. Moses knew he was the man. But he needed these other guys to accomplish his task. We have Joshua and Caleb. We have Esther. You know, Esther had Mordecai. Daniel had the three guys, who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You had Elijah and Elijah. See, the Lord partners people up. I mean, we could keep going. I mean, he could look all over the Old Testament. But we also have to look in the New Testament. You know, we have the Apostle Paul. He had people like Barnabas and Silas and Luke. Who did Peter have? Man, he had his buddies, James and John. They're always competing against each other, but they're always, always holding each other up. Mary had Martha. Only a few times in Scripture's do you ever have a guy there by himself? Because God partners us up. and he does it for many reasons. And today's reason, Ezra, Ezra had certain gifts, and Nehemiah had certain gifts, and both these needed to be used. Ezra laid this invisible foundation while Nehemiah laid the physical foundation. Nehemiah, you know, wall was this barrier or this border. It protected him ezra's wall was a barrier and a border it protected the people because the word of god was that important because until we apply this stuff to our lives it means nothing so i have to ask you who is on your team who are you partnered up with you know for some of us it's easier just to do it ourselves right Oh, man, if I bring somebody in, I'm going to have to explain it to them. And, oh, you know how much they talk so much. Or, or, you know, I really don't like their personality. I mean, we could come up with a myriad of reasons to do it ourselves. And sometimes it's just easier to do it ourselves, right? But teamwork is a biblical concept. Even Jesus selected a team to work with. I mean, and that was a pretty hilarious team. And this really brings us to principle number 44 as we've gone through this effective leaders list. Effective leaders allow God to put together the teams. If God has called you for a specific task in this world, who's working on that task with you? Who are my teammates we need to ask? And when we move our, you know, sometimes we, we like to move ahead by ourselves. Well, what happens when we move ahead by ourselves? man. Too often we're setting ourselves up for failure. Now, we won't always fail, but the road will be long and lonely if you're out there by yourself. Because when we hit bottom, what happens? There's no way there, nobody there to pick us up. No one to say it'll be okay. You know, a healthy marriage, the, the two people are there to say, you know what, we're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. No matter what happens, we're there. That's a healthy marriage. Or a healthy business partner. Oh, dude, I, this, this is going to kill our bottom line, but we're going to be able to make it through this. Our co workers. You know, we can only go so far on adrenaline because circumstances in life happen. And if we don't have an Ezra or a Nehemiah in our life, or if we're not an Ezra or a Nehemiah for somebody else, uh, somebody else in this life, if we haven't done these things, then more often than not, we're going to fail on things. We're not going to be able to reach the goal. Well, verse 2, it goes on, it says, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now, some of you think that I'm kind of long-winded. Ezra taught for six hours. So today, no, okay, we're not going to go there. But he gathers everybody who could understand. And the phrase who could understand was repeated twice. And any time the Bible repeats something, you know, pretty close to each other, you have to look at it. You have, to, you have to pay attention to it. So anyone who could understand was kind of required, in a sense, to be there. These people just, just gathered up, and it was estimated that there was 30,000 to 40,000 people that were there. But if you could not understand, you didn't have to be there. If you were a small child, or maybe you were too young, you, you don't have to come there and just, you know, behave yourself. You didn't have to be there. And this is how groups have always done this. You go back through history and you will see the church. This is not a new thing. There's some talk out there that the American church started the, the Sunday school tradition and the separating of, of different groups. Uh, you know, and it's not a biblical concept, is, is the you know, what they look at. And that is not correct. There's always been different group settings that the church has used to teach each other. You have it here, you have it in the New Testament when it says that the older should teach the younger, and so on. And this is why we try to, you know, provide different avenues for our little ones to learn, because they learn at a different level. I mean, I you know, I, I couldn't imagine being a, a four-year-old or a six-year-old or even a, you know, a fourth grader sitting in here listening to this guy just m- go on. I mean, it, it, you know, it's just like the Charlie Brown things. You know, wah, 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 wah. goes right over their heads. Couldn't imagine that. Children are not mature enough to sit through a sermon this long. Now, can you bring them in? Yeah, we allow that. We're not going to kick you out. I mean, some churches, as they get larger, when you have 50 children in the service, you get this one wailing and that one wailing. Well, there's an issue, and they try to deal with it different ways. But we're not going to kick you out. But we strong, strongly encourage you as the children get old enough to go into the classes that you allow them to do that. And if you're kind of going, well, I don't know who teaches that. we'll go over there and find out. Go sit there. Go, go see what's going on. Be, you know, be a parent that's involved. We want to protect our children. That's, you know, that's important. We, we actually had a, a family that recently left over this very thing. The subject actually ruined the friendships that, that we had with them. They felt the church was basically wrong by having Sunday school. You should never separate out any part of the family, ever. They felt the church was biblically wrong. Youth groups shouldn't have them. And what they did was they left no room for discussion on the subject. I disagreed, our elders disagreed uh, uh, about this, and we said, no, biblically, we, we don't see it that way. Well, because of that, they felt like we couldn't even be friends anymore. And it's very sad when we do this to each other in the church. When we, when we cherry-pick verses that meet what we think, and we don't look at the totality of the Bible, man, it just ruins friendships. Nehemiah says that this type of situation, there are going to be those that do not understand, so we don't expect them to set through the service. So as a church, we try to provide other avenues for them to learn. It says in verse 3, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now, when it says the water gate, what did they mean? The gate next to the very thick wall that protected Israel, they had huge old gates on them, and basically it led down to the water. That's where they went to get the water, okay? So that's what they're talking about here, and it had a big open area so a lot of people could, could gather up but it says that they listened attentively. Now, what does that mean? They were not distracted. They were tuned in. They were paying close attention. This is what your parents want when they say, listen to me. I can look at Brandon, and I'll go, Brandon, look at me. And he'll go, he knows when i say that phrase that i want that eye contact i want you to listen to me i don't want you to be distracted i want you tuned in i want you paying close attention we strive to be attentive we try to try to be focused and if the pastor doesn't go off on one of his little bird walks that he likes to go on then it would it, probably help us a little bit but one thing that we need to do is to pay attention where we set it in the service you know, I was joking around earlier that you know we get a lot of people sitting in the back, and, and I was one of those people when I was younger. You know, and, and I grew up Southern Baptist, and you always heard the back row Baptist, right? You know, I, I don't know maybe it's a Southern thing. I don't know. But one thing we have to pay attention to is where we sit in the service, because if you're a person that can be easily distracted, that's why I'm up here in front, because I'm easily distracted. If I sit out there, I wouldn't be listening. That was kind of a joke, but okay. But if you're a person that's easily distracted, you need to move toward the front. If you notice someone talking during the service, if you're an adult, you have the responsibility to say, hey, shh, be quiet. Now, my dad used to thump me in the ear. I don't recommend that because the kids usually scream. Or if you're not related to the person, I don't recommend that. But ever so often as a pastor, and other pastors deal with this, somebody will come up and say, hey, can you talk to so-and-so? They're always talking during the service. And and my first thought is, well, why don't you say something to them? And then I realize, well, because if that person gets mad, they want to mad at you and not them. For some of us, our whole mindsets have got to be adjusted, even to the point where we say, okay, I'm going to be at church on time on the Sunday because if I don't get there on time, I'm flustered. It depends on how distracted you are. Everything we do on Sunday morning sets us up for something. Either doing what the Bible says, it starts with an A, means being attentive or being distractive. Attentive means I'm aware that I can be distracted. And I'm aware of those around me who might distract me or that I might distract. So once the service starts, man, my mindset is on God. Not the thing I, you know, forgot to tell so-and-so. You know, I've experienced this, and many of you experience this. You know, churches get this all the time. You're worshiping, you're singing along, somebody comes over to you and says, blah, 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 blah. And you're like... Okay, that has nothing to do with what we're doing right now. Why are you telling me about the bathroom's backed up? Or whatever it is, you know, just pick a subject. And you're just like, we're, we're trying to worship, but we're sitting there going, oh yeah, I forgot to tell so-and-so. We need to, we need to change our mindset. Let's not distract those around us. Don't come between them and God. We need to do this out of respect for ourselves, respect for others, and respect for the Word of God. It says here that Ezra the scribe, in verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on the high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him stood, on those right, stood a whole bunch of men. And it just names them. You can read them there in your own Bible. That's what the dot, dot, dot means. But then Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Now the word amen just means truly. It means, preach it, pastor. I, I, I understand what you're saying. Keep going. I, you know, I'm Southern Baptist, and man, you know, you, you get the pastor going, and every so often somebody will be going, preach it. Or they say, amen, brother. You know, and they just, they get you going. And they're saying, I agree with you, Ezra. Now, this was a huge service. It says the Levites, Joshua, and a whole bunch of different names, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. This was Ezra's teaching team basically. They went out into to the crowd because how can 30 to 40,000 people hear or understand one person especially when they didn't have microphones and speakers and everything else. Well, Ezra would get out there and and say some part of the law and then a guy, you know, maybe 100 foot out would would listen to him and then he'd turn around and say what Ezra just said. So it'd be echoed down the line so they could all understand. So he had his teaching team out there. And I really you know, they really revered the Word of God. And I think this is one of the downfalls of the church. Because I think through history, from the beginning of the church until now, we've not taught the people to understand the law. They're, kind of, they're you know, during the different ages of, you know, they call it the dark ages and the industrial age and all these things. But one of the things is people really couldn't read, so the church basically said, well, we'll, we'll be able to teach you. But they used it to control the people. And it wasn't until the Gutenberg Press came out that things really started to change because people started reading it and understanding it. For some reason, we got to a point where they were supposed to revere the Word of God but not read it. Revere going to church but not getting much out of it. And I say this is wrong. The common man needs to know the Word of God. And how do we apply it to our lives? So let's look and see what happens in verse 9. It says Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. The people were just basically broken down and crying, because what does the law do? The law points out our sin, it points out where we've done things wrong. That's what our law today does, right? You break a law, you go to court. Well, you're supposed to at least. That's what the law does. It points out the things you've done wrong. They were repenting because they realized that their forefathers had refused to, to celebrate the festival that was supposed to start right then. That the law was, was, you know, commanded them to do. It was called the Festival of a Tabernacle or Booths, and we're going to talk about that next week. And for 900 years, they did not celebrate it. They didn't do it. And when they realized this, they started crying. It broke their hearts. And Nehemiah had to tell them to stop crying in verse 9 and verse 10. It says, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who, who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Word of God was so powerful that it affected them to the point where they said, My sin... My sin is getting in in, in the way of my relationship with God, and they just broke down. And man, what a revival they had. This was a God-ordained revival. This wasn't they didn't put up posters and said, come to the revival. No, the people were genuinely repenting and reviving. And it says, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Is there anybody out there right now that has sorrow in their life? What about pain or suffering? It says here, "Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength." Verse 11, it says the Levites calmed all the people, saying, "Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve." Basically they're, you know, having to calm them down going, going Shh. No, 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 don't. You know when my son is really crying, you know, he's going, ah, ah. You have to calm him down. No, no, don't start that again. The priests are going around going, shh, calm down. Now that the word of God has gotten through to them, they're basically saying, it's going to be okay. You're forgiven because God's mercy covers you, God's grace covers you. It is okay. It doesn't matter what you've done in life, it doesn't matter what you have not done in this life. You see, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you've not done. Because God's mercy is there. God's joy is your strength. It says, verse 12: Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. It doesn't say that they rejoiced because the service was over or because they understood the words. You know when I rejoice as a pastor? When I see people understand the Word and implement it into their lives, when they go, you know, I was thinking this, but, but the Word taught me that this, and you start to see that change in their life because they've understood, and all of a sudden a motivation to serve happens in, in them, a motivation to worship God, a motivation of, of hospitality to those around you, a, a willingness to reach out to others. This is when joy happens and we start to get it. We start to understand it. The Word of God is a powerful Word. And once the Lord fixes our hearts, we start to understand that His grace covers our sin because each one of us has sin. Each one of us has done something wrong this past week. Who's not done something wrong? I want to know who you are. I don't see any hands. We've all done something wrong. But that sin is covered by God. And that's the great thing. And that's when the joy you know, starts. So we need to just take a breath. Just relax for a second. Because God's grace covers our sin. So the joy of the Lord is their strength. Where does your strength come from? Man, I tell you, if you rely on getting a good night's sleep, if you rely on... You know, having great relationships. If you rely on anything else than God to get your strength, you're going to be worn out. You're going to try and try and try, and you're going to wear yourselves out until we come to the Lord. Because that is where the ultimate strength comes from. When we start to understand what He's done for us and what we are to do for Him. And that's just follow Him. Follow Him. Now next week, we're going to explain the Feast of Tabernacles and Booth. We're going to go in-depth into that a little bit more. It's kind of a cool little holiday, especially if you like like to camp or get out in the wilderness and stuff. We're going to talk about that next week. But the joy of the Lord is their strength. Hmm. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that when we come to you and we start to understand the Word of God, whether it's through a Bible study or whether it's through a Sunday morning service or whether we're just reading it, that when we start to understand it, sometimes the word, the law, convicts us of our sin. And I pray, Lord, that you, you just shove your grace right through that conviction so we understand that your grace has covered us. Because you died on the cross, I don't have to go around moping because of my sin. I can have joy and I can strength through you and in you. And I pray that that's what we begin today, this joy. that As we go into the season of celebration of, of Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and all the things that, that go around them, that our joy not, uh, does not come from these things. Our joy comes from you. And it makes these celebrations even more poignant. We love you so much, Lord. And we pray that we understand your word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. the Lord's face shine down upon you. And may His joy and His strength just flow right through you this week. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.